Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Well, when I ask you to turn to a scripture, you realize I'm using selected scriptures. It's kind of hard to do. But in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, This is where we launched into this study on covenant. It says, but now he, Jesus, our high priest, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So we've been talking about the covenant. Today, we want to look at the love language of covenant. We've looked at the lost language of covenant. We've looked at uh, the faithfulness of covenant. We've looked at two messages on our identity in covenant. We've looked at three messages on our accountability in covenant. But I don't want anybody to miss this today of the love language of covenant. Just the very word covenant is God's way of telling us and showing us and illustrating for us how much he loves us. I want you to say it with me from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting or eternal life. I just believe if somebody's in this auditorium this morning that needs to hear personally, specifically, and individually that God loves you. I will never forget the day when it was no longer God so loved the world, but it was God so loved Wayne. In fact, it's it's etched into my heart to where it's difficult to even talk about. When I realized I did not know him, having been in the ministry for years, but did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, knew all about him, but had never known him. The God who spoke the world into existence loves us this morning. He loves us this morning. The very character of God is love, and he cannot deny himself. In 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. I don't know who the theologian was. I never can remember. I've heard the story so many times of the great theologian who went to a university to speak one morning in a special audience. And after he finished speaking about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he took questions. And one of the questions was, what is the greatest truth that you have ever learned? And his answer is so unique. He said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. So it makes total sense that God would reach into the vocabulary of man, lift a word out that man would fully understand of the word covenant, and and to help us to understand his love and the relationship he wants with you and I. After Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3, and in his sin condemned all mankind with no hope in sight because every one of us are born of his seed. That's very important to the message today. God promised that there would one day be a new seed that would be born of woman and that would crush Satan and provide for us the new birth and our redemption. 
But first of all, sin had to be dealt with, so God began to reveal his plan of redemption. Now, God singles out a man who was a Chaldean from Babylonia in Genesis chapter 12 by the name of Abram. Changed his name to Abraham or Abraham as we say in Genesis 17. He cuts a unilateral covenant with him by putting him to sleep. Why? Because he knew that Abram was of the seed of Adam and could never fulfill his end of the deal. In this covenant, God promised him a land and he promised him a nation and he promised him a seed. He renewed that promise of a seed. Now, why is it important to bring up the word seed? Seed determines kind. So there would have to be a new seed for a man to be in a relationship with God. He's of the seed of Adam. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. I tried to grow a garden once when we lived in the South. <laughs> We had our neighbors come to us and ask me never to do that again. But I found out something. You plant peas, you're going to get what? Peas. You plant watermelon, you're going to get watermelon. In fact, you, we plant beans. It's, it's really interesting because there's different kinds of beans, pinto beans, and there's all kinds of different beans. We had some pole beans. I don't know if you know what they are. They're called climbing beans. I'd never heard of climbing beans. I just went to the store and bought some beans. They said, put a stake down. Well, only stake I could find. We had some ba bamboo shoots there, and I got some about 10 to 12 foot long. <laughs> and I stuck them in the ground and planted the beans around at the bottom of it. I did not know that a climbing bean will climb whatever it's planted on all the way to the end. And it did. And it was rather difficult to pick them when it came out. You see, this is my point. Bad seed only produces bad seed. There's not a thing you can do with it. You're going to have to have some new seed if things are going to change. Adam's seed was bad seed. God ratified his covenant to Isaac. Then he ratified it to Jacob who became Israel who had 12 sons and which became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Galatians 3.16 tells us that the seed promised to Abram was not Isaac. Although Isaac certainly had to be born for his promise to be fulfilled, but that seed that he was talking about and promised to Abram was not Isaac. It was not Jacob. It was not any of the sons of Israel, but it would come from them. In fact, this seed would come from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, and that this new seed would receive its, his humanity from this nation. But Galatians 3.16 tells us that Jesus is the seed. It says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as to, referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, that is Christ. Now, in the promise of a new seed. What did God do in revealing his plan in the Old Testament? In fact, it was a very loving thing that God did. When people read the Old Testament, they see something different about God than you need to see. You need to see the loving nature of God in the Old Testament. How did he bring about an understanding in their hearts of the promised seed? A very loving thing that he did. Actually, two things that he does. And he was loving them as he did them. First of all, he lovingly gave the law. Now, you say, well, lovingly? 
Come on, Wayne. Lovingly gave the law. Man had to realize his own sinfulness, and he had to realize the seed into which he had been born. If a man can't understand that, then he doesn't need to be saved. He doesn't understand what Christianity is. Jesus said to one of the best teachers of the law in John chapter 3, by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus should have known better. It's all through his Old Testament understanding, but he didn't know better. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he was also a, a Pharisee. And Jesus said to him, he came to him by night because he didn't want the other Pharisees to know that he was questioning Jesus. He was curious about him. And he said to him, said, Lord, you just, uh, nobody could do what you do except God sent, sent him. And Jesus didn't, didn't mess around at all. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There are two seeds in that verse, two births in that verse. If you're either born of the flesh, now, but you must be born of the Spirit. He says in verse 7, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. To be born again requires a new seed. There's another birth. The first birth was of Adam. And it was bad seed. It required a new seed. The giving of the law, which was the Ten Commandments, was the very best thing God could have done to help man realize his sinful condition. Moses said of Israel that he knew that they were the most stubborn and rebellious people on the face of the earth. The psalmist picks up on it and says almost identically the same thing in Psalm 78, verse 6 through 8. He says that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And look at verse 8. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Israel had no idea that it was a sinful nation. While they had been picked out, God had, had prepared this nation. He, he was the one who created it. They were in. Nicodemus, when he went to Jesus, thought he was in. He didn't think about it having to be born again. They had no idea. So the covenant of law was given to expose them for what they were. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gave a promise to Abraham in covenant. But 430 years later, the promise of grace, after the promise of grace was made to Abraham, the seed, and that the seed would come, then he gave them the law. Now, the law all was too entering into an agreement, whereas the covenant with Abraham was unilateral. Abraham was asleep. He made no commitment to anything. God was the one who, who committed to him. In Exodus 19.8, Exodus 24.3, and Exodus 24.7, it says this. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, now listen to this, all the things that God required of them, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. God had lovingly set them up. They broke the covenant of law before the sun went down. And now what? You're condemned under the fact of the law. If you break it, the penalty is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. The giving of the law was a part of God's loving plan to get them ready and to lead them right to grace 
which had been promised to Abraham. In Galatians 3, 19, it says, why the law then? And a lot of people surely have asked that. Why did he ever give the law? He says it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. The law simply brought man one step closer to the realization of their need by frustrating their flesh. I love it. God was lovingly and slowly drawing them to himself. Galatians 2, or 3 rather, 23 and 24. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law was God's temporary way of loving his people by exposing their sin and their inability to please him in their flesh. The law was preparing man for the coming of the seed. The law was necessary to bring about the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Man had to be ready for grace. He had to understand what he wasn't. He had to realize he was lost before he could ever be saved. Well, God loved us by giving us the law. So we see the first thing then. God lovingly gave us the law. And if a person is not saved today, and hopefully you'll understand that by the time we finish, then you're still condemned by that very law. Because you see, until you're born again, can you then have that relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? So secondly, what did he do? Now that he's exposed their sin, now what? Secondly, he lovingly gave us the tabernacle, the tabernacle. Not only did God give man the law, but he gave them the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a place that they would move from place to place that would give them an, an ability to deal with the sin that have now been exposed, to have a temporary but not the kind of relationship God wanted, but to keep that relationship with him until grace could come. Man had broken God's law. But God lovingly, and I want you to see this, lovingly provided a temporary way to deal with that sin and continue to relate to him. The tabernacle was like an artist paints a picture of the seed to come and how we will one day relate to him and the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. All of that's built in to this marvelous, marvelous picture in the Old Testament. He, he, he draws a picture of the one who will come, the Lord Jesus who would ultimately deal with sin, not just on a year-by-year -year basis, and would ultimately become the way in which man could relate to God. The tabernacle was made after a pattern in heaven. Now, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was as important to them as the tabernacle is that the Lord Jesus ministers in today as our high priest in heaven. If you took the tabernacle and measured it off, it would be 150 feet by 75 feet. Now, Big John walked around and measured it off. If you would go back to where the sound booth ends right over here, everything all the way to the wall would be about the size of the, of the whole area called the tabernacle. There was only one door in which you could enter. 
the first thing that you would come to would be an altar. It would be the altar, the, where the, where the, the graven, brazen altar, where the sacrifices were offered. This is where they'd bring their sacrifices. Next, you would come to a laver, which was made out of mirrored glass and was filled with water. Then you'd come to the tent of meeting. Now, the tent of meeting was inside that 150 by 75 foot area. It was 45 feet long. And it was 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. These measurements are found in Exodus 26, verse 15 through 26. Now, it was figuring that a cubit is a foot and a half. You have to remember that when you look in Scripture, it's by cubits. But a cubit was about 18 inches long. The first room of that tinted, closed-in area was 30 foot long and 15 feet wide. It was called the holy place. And the second room was 15 feet long and 15 feet wide, and it was called the Holy of Holies. Now, inside the holy place, there was some furniture. There was a table of showbread. There was the altar of incense that continued to burn before the Lord. And there were the golden candlesticks, seven of them on one stand, a golden candlesticks. Inside the ark, that was, or what, the holy place was separated by the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, there was a veil that separated them, eight inches thick. They said two bulls could not pull it apart. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that is so significant. This is a special room. Only the high priest could go in once a year. Inside the Ark that was sitting there, there were two tablets of stone, the golden rod of Aaron, and the pot of manna. Over the ark were two cherubim who were facing each other with wings spread. But oh, what a picture we're beginning to see here. First of all, if you want to look at that tabernacle and compare it to the Lord Jesus, Jesus is the door and the only way to enter into fellowship with God. In fact, he said in John 10, 7, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, the altar was a picture of the Lord Jesus and the cross when he died on the cross. That altar there is a picture of the cross. The laver, which was made of mirror glass, is a picture of the Word of God in which we see ourselves as to what we are, but we also see who he is. It's a cleansing of the mind there. The candlesticks are a picture of Jesus being the light of the world. In John 9, 5, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. The incense is a picture of his intercessory work for us that Christ intercedes for us. The table of showbread is a picture of Christ being the bread of life. In John 6, 32, it says, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. It's a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen, the veil is a picture of what separates us from God, which is our sinfulness, the sinfulness of our flesh. It, it's this being of the seed of Adam automatically separates us from God. It was therefore also a picture of Christ's body that became sin for us in Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, he is flesh. 
The veil was rent. You remember when he was there on the cross, the veil was rent from the top to the bottom, signifying that it was not man who ripped it, but it was God who ripped it. And now a new way through Christ had been provided into his presence. It marked the end of a barrier between man and God. The tabernacle is a beautiful picture of Jesus being the way through whom we must enter and through whom we, we, we put on his garment and therefore have relationship with God. But here's what I want you to see. Inside that holy of holy was, was the ark. The ark itself draws the picture as clear as anything. It was a beautiful picture of Christ in his redemptive work. The Ark of the Covenant was made of acacia wood, and it was lined with pure gold. It was three feet, nine inches long, two feet, three inches wide, the best I can figure. But to get the picture, we must look at what's inside of the Ark. Inside the Ark were three things. Now, you say they're going to represent Jesus. Yes, they do, but they represent something else. There were three things that represented the three of the most embarrassing, sinful events of all of Jewish history. You want to know what man's like? Even Israel in the seed of Adam, it was represented right there. The pot of manna represented the food that God had provided from heaven for them in, in, when they were in the wilderness and of which they grew tired of and complained to God about it. You see, this is God provided, but they didn't like his provision. It was bread from heaven. The manna was a reminder of what that God had provided them the food, and they were ungrateful. The rod of Aaron was a stick representing the staff of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. And it was also a reminder of when they rebelled against the very authority that God had chosen as being their high priest. In Numbers 17 and verse 10, But the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may, be, that, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. The stone tablets represented the law which Israel had sworn to obey, as we read, as they entered into the old covenant, but immediately had broken. Now you see the seed of man, how pitiful it really is. Now watch. The top of the ark of the, uh, the covenant was called the atonement cover. Actually, the word atonement means cover, which covered the sins of the people. Inside that ark was their rebellion to God's provision, their rebellion to God's direction, their rebellion to God's authority, represented by those three things. And every, it, but this was called, the top of the ark was called the atonement cover. And we also call it the mercy seat. On top of the ark were two golden cherubim, as we mentioned, and that symbolized God's presence. And they had their wings spread and folded forward, and they were facing each other, looking in awe at the mercy seat. Oh, what a picture. When the priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone for the rebellious sins of himself and also the people, immediately, immediately, man had an audience with God. In Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet with you. And from, from above the mercy seat and, and from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. 
It was God's throne. The mercy seat was God's throne among his people under the old covenant. But do you see it? I want you to go back to those three items. The three items that represented the shortcomings of the mankind and the seed of Adam have now in Christ, the God-man, taken on a whole different meaning. First of all, the pot of manna. Unlike Adam's seed, when Jesus came into the world, he didn't reject God's provisions, but instead he became God's provision for each of us. The new seed has a total different meaning. In John 6, 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. But then secondly, the staff of Aaron that represented the rejection of God's authority from man's seed. Unlike Adam's seed, Jesus did not reject his father's authority, but instead was obedient unto death on the cross. For I have come down from heaven, he says in John 6, 38, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus the God-man, the new seed, died and came back to life like the rod of Aaron that budded. He came back to life. Thirdly, the tablets of stone. Unlike Adam's seed, Jesus did not reject the law. In fact, he's the one who gave it, but came into this world, the God-man, and obeyed the very law in which he himself had given. He lived a perfect and sinless life before the law representing you and I. In Romans 3, 20 through 22, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sins we read a while ago. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all of those who believe, for there is no distinction. So the law, the giving of the law, was God's loving way of helping mankind to realize the seed that he was born out of was a bad seed, and he was born a sinner into this world. Then the tabernacle, again, was how God revealed what's coming. There is going to be a way. And he began to announce just by symbolism of the things that they had to go through. He helped them to see the holiness of God. and He helped them to see the sinfulness of man. But in every aspect, the Lord Jesus, the new seed, the promised seed had come and fulfilled every bit of it. The law frustrated man and exposed his sin. The tabernacle revealed the coming of the seed, Jesus Christ, that is our mercy seat forever. Through the law and through the tabernacle, they saw themselves as sinners, unable to please God in their own power, and were made ready to be born again by a new seed to become brand new creatures. You see, this is what Nicodemus didn't understand. Bad seed cannot become good seed. You have to be born again. You have to be born of a different seed. You have to be born of the spirit. That which is of the flesh is flesh. That which is of the spirit is spirit. I remember years ago when Dinah came to me after a dear, dear man who ministered down in Mobile, Alabama, came to do a meeting in our church. Standing in the kitchen, she said, Wayne, I... 
I, I, I think I got saved. And I said, what do you mean you got saved? If you know Diana, she's about the nicest person I've ever known. I, she's about as close as you can get for bad seed looking like it's good seed. I said, what do you mean? And she said, Wayne, this morning in the Bible study, I never had seen myself as being unrighteous. She had been exposed. She saw herself like God saw her. And she said, I bowed and I prayed to receive Jesus in my heart. Actually, she didn't really even pray. She can't remember the words because words don't save you. Jesus saves you. She just gave herself to him and was birthed of the new seed and I come back to what we sh Jesus said to Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. I'll just tell you what's on my heart today about the church in the 21st century. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about wherever you go. I believe we're filled many times with many people that have never been born of the new seed. They join the church. They do good things. They give money to missions. They do all the right stuff. But it's still that which is out of bad seed. All our righteousness, Isaiah said, is filthy rags. And I believe when the revival begins to come in our country, we're going to start seeing church members, many, thinking they're saved, but have never come to know the Lord Jesus personally in their, li in their life. There has to be two births. There has to be two births. To have two births, you have to have two seeds. You had the old seed in Adam and sin. We were all born into that seed. There had to be a coming of a new seed who is the Lord Jesus, our Savior, and our Redeemer. I love what we sung a while ago about the old fellow in John 9. <laughs> I don't know what happened. He said, I just know that I was blind and now I can see. Yeah. What a difference. I've had people tell me I got saved, but I never sensed any difference. Well, let's go back and check and see if you got saved. The Spirit of God comes to live in you. Something is refreshingly new. You have a brand new heart. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. Do you realize that when somebody gives their testimony, that'll inspire you? but only the Word of God can convict you. You have to see yourself born of bad seed before you can understand the seed that it was promised and to be born from above by the Spirit of God. When you see yourself as lost, that's the only time you can cry out to be saved.
And that's how God lovingly led us right to grace. He had to give the law to frustrate and then to promise the grace to come. And he drew a picture for us in the tabernacle. And everything in that tabernacle, Jesus fulfilled and now becomes the way, the door through whom we enter. That's God's love for us. God loves you this morning. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 